This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. I recently spent the day at the Acropolis in Athens with about 40,000 other people. It all adds up to over-tourism. We'll talk about making our travels sustainable. And speaking of special trips, a new Vision TV series follows Zoomers and their children on their adventures of a lifetime. It's called 50 Ways to Kill Your Mom. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Canada's first dementia village will open later this summer in B.C. It's being called the new standard of care for those living with the neurological disorder. The five-acre gated care centre features winding walkways, flower beds, a barn, a community centre with a grocery store, a salon, and an activity space. Unlike traditional models of care that are more institutional and isolating, the Village Langley is part of a growing movement to provide more personalized care and greater social engagement. If you're enjoying a summer barbecue this weekend with a beer or a glass of wine, here's some sobering news. For years, we've been told that drinking in moderation is okay or even good for our health. Now, a new two-country study finds that giving up alcohol altogether improves your quality of life. It found that both men and women who were lifetime abstainers reported the highest level of mental well-being and women who drank moderately saw immediate improvements in their mental health after they quit drinking. Studies published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Five Toronto hospitals have earned bragging rights. According to a Newsweek study of over a 1,000 hospitals from around the world, Toronto General is seventh on the list of top 10 hospitals globally. Baycrest was chosen as one of the world's top specialized hospitals for its geriatric care and also making the list Princess Margaret, the Hospital for Sick Children, and the Schuldice Hernia Hospital. Stevie Wonder announced this week that he'll undergo a kidney transplant this fall. The 69-year-old revealed the news to fans himself in England during his concert to quell any health rumors, adding that he has a donor, so it's, quote, all good. The R&B legend will play three more shows before taking a break for surgery in September. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. So you're finally taking that big trip on the bucket list, only to find that you're sharing your experience of ancient sites and breathtaking landscapes with hordes of other tourists. You may also be hurting the locals by using up their resources and pricing them out of the market. That was partly my experience on a recent trip to Greece. It's a fairly new phenomenon called over-tourism, and I checked in with Megan Epler-Wood, director of Harvard's International Sustainable Tourism Initiative. The thing that's driving it is the growth of the global middle class. And uh, in terms of stats, 
uh, Europe is the number one tourism destination in the world. We have 671 million tourists there right now, and it grew at 8%, which is very high uh, for the growth rate of any industrial phenomenon. Uh, the Americas, just to give you an example, had one-third that number of tourists for all of the, you know, the continental of both southern and northern North America. Uh, so, and Asia-Pacific is about one-half now of Europe, so, and growing at 6% a year. So, what's Push, what's happening, it's a classic tipping point, uh, especially in Europe, uh, because it's a small geographic area, right, compared to these other areas, and it's getting the most tourists. From your point of view, what makes a location over-touristed? What we measure is a lot of underlying statistics uh, related to the use of natural, cultural, and social resources I want to mention, of course, there are high positive impacts in tourism, uh, and those are found in, you know, employment, uh, uh, pr- you know, producing better livelihoods for women in particular. Uh, you know, a lot of payroll and payroll taxes are going to people all over the world in a highly distributed way. But where are the negative impacts? Basically, in the environment, we see excess water pollution, overuse of local water resources, uh, ungoverned land use causing excessive sprawl, uh, unmanaged solid waste, and uh, not, certainly, last but not least, air emissions and, and uh, carbon or GHG emissions. And then, of course, there's the whole area of social impacts, which actually may be the thing that's driving all the reporting, uh, which is very difficult to measure. We're still looking to find ways to measure that, but it has to do with overcrowding. What about, say, damage to monuments to ancient sites because there are so many people there? Right. So and when it comes to cultural monuments, they tend to be hot spots that are actually quite critical to the economies of regions. Everything from Angkor Wat to Venice to the Taj Mahal are actually why people go to many of these places. Or, and, and so, therefore, uh, the question will be in future... Uh, how do we manage that so that people aren't crawling all over each other and are not doing damage? For instance, I was at the Acropolis, and in high season, the 40,000 people a day. Overall, what we're seeing is that the monuments aren't doing a, a good job yet at reservation management. Uh, if you travel on an airline or you reserve at a hotel... You know, there's a, a very well-known system called demand management in which, you know, it's part of booking a ticket, right? It's just built in. You may not know it's there, but it governs everything from price to, you know, when you can get access, all those things. Unfortunately, most of our monuments are not managed in this way. And another big problem is, is that their fee structure is not really uh, yet set up in order to give them the manage- management capacity that they need in order to put better institutionalized systems in so that people can get access, but they're going to have to do it in ways that are a little different than what they do now. I know the Uffizi in Florence, for example, put in a system where you can go get a ticket and they'll give you a beeper, essentially. Uh, You know, just the way... Like a restaurant, exactly. Well, and they don't have that yet at almost every monument. That was considered to be a big breakthrough, and I had to kind of laugh when I saw that because I think it's, you know, Pizza Hut does that, right? So, so what we're seeing is I went to Versailles personally and saw crowds less bring myself. They did have an online web 
system, and yet they had nobody to point you at all when you got to the site where to go in order to get it honored. So, you know, these are major monuments. Uh, what they're lacking is probably technical IT capacity. Uh, it may be that they are going to have to hire more people, and they're going to have to institutionalize different reservation systems. One of the things, as crowded as these places are, you know, you get back and, and people tell you, you better go before they shut it down. They say stuff like that about Machu Picchu. Yeah. It's really sad because the one thing that we do here, and I'm glad you're asking, is, well, they're going to have to shut it. You know, that would be an economic disaster for Peru. I can tell you that. What is happening here overall is is that governments at the highest levels are not recognizing the value of these sites uh, in terms of their reputation, right, as as a country. I mean, if Machu Picchu or, you know, Venice, certainly in Italy, must be suffering terribly from the bad reputation they're getting for allowing this overcrowding to happen. And their first reaction is like, we may have to close this. That is not a good PR strategy. The current tax system, which is basically, you know, rooms and meal tax and airport tax, is all going to actually promoting demand for more tourism. Our research shows that, you know, and there's not as many statistics I will point out as we would like on this, and it's variable from place to place. But 80% roughly of your tax dollar that you're paying to travel to these places is not going to the management of these sites. Then what you're getting instead is these things like we may have to shut this down. I don't think so. I can tell you if they did that in India or Cambodia, uh, it would cut their it would cut their tourism revenues in half. A lot of locals complain that you know Airbnb prices them out of the rental market. Lots of complaints about cruise ships because they disgorge people who don't really spend money on the local economy. Uh, th- those are the kinds of concerns. And again, even for the things that tourists do, putting money in the local economy, the locals can't afford to do. Right. So this is a very complex formula that will have to be transpire in the next 10 years. And uh, both my institutions, Harvard and Cornell, are very keen on working with business on this matter. Uh, we do believe that large-scale business is going to have to come to the table. At present, um, they, they essentially are looking at, at this primarily as a government problem. But the issue really is that government and business will have to work together to solve. How much of a problem is Instagram? I mean, you're in these places. I was in Santorini where tourism has just skyrocketed over the last five years. And there are basically uh, these people, I just want a, a great Instagrammable picture of the famous sunset or the famous churches. We're going to have to look at it as the, from a point of view of changing human behavior, and you can imagine that's a very tricky one. So what we are actually really focusing on is the underlying uh, problems with protecting these highly valuable cultural heritage and natural sites. You can imagine it. From our point of view, this is an emergency. Thank you so much for that. Very interesting. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Megan Epler-Wood, director of Harvard's International Sustainable Tourism Initiative. Mom, yes? mind your will. Whoa. I'm John Doerr. I've decided I'm going to spend the next few days with my mom, see if adventure runs in the family. Hi, Sharon. Your turn. Oh, dear. That's a clip featuring comedian John Doerr from the new Vision TV series, 
50 Ways to Kill Your Mom. The concept is simple. Celebrities take their parents on challenging, thrill-seeking, intergenerational adventures and document it all in a reality TV series. I talked with John about his road trip with his mother. I asked mom. She said she was in. I thought it would be fun. There was time in the schedule. And uh, that's how it all began. So, yeah, very simple beginnings. Can I just get an idea of how old you are, how old your mom is? You can get an idea. Sure. Um, I am 43, and my mom is, she's in her 70s. I think she was excited about uh, spending a lot of time uh, with me, her firstborn, probably her favorite child, I'd imagine. (laughs) Okay, of course. I mean, I only imagine. And, um, yeah, she was thrilled. She was excited. If anything, I was, you know, a little bit apprehensive. Um, I I mean, it's one thing to spend a week with your mother uh, doing adventure tourism activities. But when there's a television camera involved and a schedule to stick to, it always feels rushed. And I'm a bit of a control freak when it comes to television production. So, yeah, I think, if anything, I was the one who was a little a little apprehensive, but my mom, no way. She's a thrill seeker. She'll do anything. What did you end up doing with your mom? Well, so we ended up ziplining over Niagara Falls, which, um, not over the actual falls, but at Niagara Falls, which is fun. It's not, you know, I mean, all these activities that we did, you know, they're adventure tourism. You sign a waiver and there's always an element of danger, but you feel relatively secure in that, you know, lots of people do these things. Um, Oh, yeah, so we did ziplining. We went on a jet boat ride on the rapids of uh, Niagara Falls, um, gathering reactions of my mom and I the whole time. It's really supposed to be symbolic of our relationship, you know, turbulent waters. And, you know, I'm assuming they'll edit it into a package where, you know, my mom and I are pushing through something um, emotional. Then we would end up uh, walking the CN Tower, uh, the skywalk outside the CN Tower. Uh, that was interesting. I don't think a human being is supposed to be that high above the ground. Um, <laughs> I would probably so agree totally with you. Natural feeling, but those are some of the things we did. Are you both in just unbelievable shape? I mean, I'm not in horrible shape, but I wouldn't say I'm, uh, you know, an athlete. Um, I'm a stand-up comic. You know, I spend my life, my my life in dirty nightclubs. So, yeah, it's not like I need to get up in the morning and exercise. Although I'm getting better at it, but no, I mean, we're in decent shape, and the activities we're doing. They're more, uh, they're not related to endurance, but um, you definitely have to be willing to be frightened. Because that can be a, a pretty brutal experience if it doesn't go over well, as I'm sure you know. It's a horrendous experience. I mean, it's heaven or hell. It's either great or it's terrible. And uh, I think she experienced a bit of both, but definitely felt really good about it. And she was fantastic. But uh, yeah, stand-up comedy is not something anyone should do uh, when they find out the morning of. Um, and then just get up there. But yeah, she was fantastic. I thought that was one of the most interesting parts of the show. Did it change your relationship? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's something my mom loves to talk about with her friends. I mean, my mom and I are, you know, we obviously love each other very much, but we're not, we don't talk every day. We don't have that type of relationship, but this is something that, um, you know, we look back on fondly and we're able to communicate about and she tells her friends about. And um, I think it was exciting and uh, it was something fun for us to do. So, yeah, I think it did strengthen our relationship. Thank you so much, John Doerr. I appreciate it, Libby. Thank you. 50 Ways to Kill Your Mom premieres Monday, July 15th at 9 p.m. on our sister station, Vision TV. 
that brings us to the end of this edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Zneimer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. Produced by Christine Ross, Michelle Saunders, Paul Thomas, Faz Kazi, and Justin Eacock. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.